Okay, welcome to the Automate Construction Podcast. Today we're joined by Fabian Myers Brotz. You may remember him from the uh, five-unit apartment building in Germany or the two-story, uh, the most innovative 3D printed house in the world. Fabian is a construction innovator and the champion of 3D printed construction at Perry. Uh, welcome to the podcast studio. Well, Jared, thank you for having me. Yeah, today, yesterday we were at uh, your most recent project here in Houston. You're building what will be the biggest 3D printed building in the world. Uh, and recently you've also been promoted to CEO of Perry as well, uh, Perry 3D Construction Division. <laughs> exactly, sir. Yeah, we've, um, I, we have been uh, carving out our 3D printing business uh, from our headquarters and uh, I have the pleasure of, of being the CEO of that. Um, and indeed, yesterday we have been uh, had the pleasure to unveil the construction site of what would probably be the biggest residential home um, uh, that has ever been printed. Mm -hmm. And uh, more particularly, it's going to be the first uh, two-story building in the United States that has been printed. Yeah, there's uh, other buildings which are two stories that include some 3D printed features, but they don't have any 3D printed uh, parts on the second floor. So yours has already reached 20 feet and it will ultimately be 40 feet with the uh, fireplace that included so incredible scale uh, and you're working with Hannah Architects um, who are the other groups involved? Um, so we uh, the, the three main partners for the project uh, apart from Perry and Hannah um, with, with two amazing architects uh, is CIBE who is a local contractor in Houston who also provided uh, all the engineering services that we need to make such a structure happen. Awesome so when I think you mentioned it was two years ago you met Hannah and that was the first ideation for this project? Indeed, uh, two years ago I met uh, Sasha, who um, is also again a, a professor at Cornell University at a, a scientific conference. Um, and at the time already we, I mean, 3D printing had been around for decades, right? So, um, but we, we always felt that there is a big difference between stacking a couple of layers of concrete and actually making this happen uh, as a complete holistic uh, construction process mm -hmm. um, and that's always been what's what's been nagging us and we wanted to prove that that, that can be done uh, and how it can be done um, and we've been hard at work ever since uh, with a lot of um, tough planning that went into it with all the little details um, of the overall construction process that we tried to figure out before actually starting to print. Yeah, I definitely want to ask about some of the more recent challenges contemporary uh, with that project. But before that, since it's the first Perry representation on the podcast, uh, I know Perry invested in Cobod pretty early on. Uh, were you you were part of Perry back then? I was. I was actually also the the person who basically drove mm -hmm. that, that investment story. Um, but but if well, if you don't mind, I can tell you Please. a little bit more of the story about how we we got into it. I mean, Perry, we are the a world leader in formwork and scaffolding solutions worldwide uh, with more than 70 subsidiaries across the globe also a very strong presence uh, here in the US um, well and formwork has obviously been the predominant technique to shape concrete right so formwork left formwork right concrete in the middle and once it's cured and hardened you remove the formwork um, and we have we as humanity have been doing that for thousands of years I mean the Roman did it that way um, but we're still a 100% family-owned business, um, so we always have a very long-term view on, on technology and innovation um, and not just you know, profit in the next quarter. Mm -hmm. um, as such, uh, Perry had decided that we need to focus on more of the disruptive side of, of things, so not just making things 2% faster and 3% cheaper, um, but really changing the way we build 
drastically um, because I, as we all know we have these huge societal challenges ahead of us um, and uh, to put it in a little bit more simpler words we, we, we said okay if there's a technology out there that can shape concrete without the use of formwork we might be out of business mm -hmm. um, and if somebody's gonna destroy our business it better be ourselves um, so we don't want to wait we don't like that we'd rather than be at the forefront of it and that's kind of how it all started um, even before the, the investment in Cobalt we've been active in the field of 3D printing but then we've seen that it actually that was back in 2017 that it already had matured faster than we had initially envisioned mm -hmm. Um, and that led us to, to travel quite a lot, uh, see a lot of the, the startups out there uh, back in the day. I mean, um, to, to visit all of them and see who, who do we want to work with, who do we feel um, is the right team with the right mindset to make that happen. That was a much easier task a few years ago than it is today. <laughs> it was. It was also a little bit of a cheaper price tag, um, but obviously it was by far not even envisioned that the market is going to be as significant as it is today. Um, yeah, and then I met um, Henrik and, and his colleagues. Uh, I believe that was actually shortly before Christmas in 2017, mm -hmm. for the very first time. Um, we, we then continued the conversation and ended up um, being the, the seed shareholder uh, with a minority investment in Cobot. Let me get the coffee. Okay, so you became the seed shareholder and minority investor in Cobot. Uh, and what was that process like convincing the... Because Perry's, a, like you were talking about, the lead former provider of big serious construction company. Uh, most construction companies are slow to adopt innovation and change. So what was the process like uh, convincing the family that owns it to make this investment in the future? Um, well, of course there was some convincing that, that had to be, be done, um, but it, it, I wouldn't say it was an awfully difficult journey. Um, again, innovation has, has always been in our hearts and we as a, as a whole company it drives what we do every day um, and in fact this kind of this mindset of disrupting our own business has always been around if I may give you a very simple example I mean we again we sell formwork but we are hard at work to invent or innovate formwork solutions where our clients need less of them mm -hmm. um, so creating products that our clients in the end need less of actually yeah. has made our company successful uh, in the long run um, and so this, as this has always been at the heart, um, definitely that, um, that, that convincing story wasn't all that difficult. I would still say though when we got started in, in 2017, 2018, um, it was obviously a bit of a bet, you know, let's let them see how it goes and yeah. if it doesn't work out uh, then, you know, it's not, not all that bad. Um, but obviously we, I think we've, we've come a long way since then, have been successful and have been growing substantially as well, um, have been able to prove what this technology can do mm -hmm. um, and also what it can't do um, and, and that's I think the, the bottom line. Yeah it certainly can eliminate the need for formwork I mean you've seen that on multiple projects at this point um, and so I guess the pitch is coming on as a threat as you were saying like our whole job is formwork so if a technology can remove the formwork it just makes sense and I guess most of the sales pitch came in convincing them to let you do the traveling to visit the different companies and at that point they were probably prepared to invest in one. Exactly, at that point it was already clear that we had a certain budget to invest um, and that uh, in, in that range I had the freedom then to, mm -hmm. to make my decisions. Um, so that, that has been clear already. But let me add that, I mean, yes, the pericentric worldview about it is obviously kind of, yeah, we do form work and it mm -hmm. might replace this, but there is that, that broader view, right, that we just 
as a one of the leaders in providing construction technology to, to the industry, we almost have a responsibility um, to tackle some of these societal challenges, right? That mm -hmm. we can build better and hopefully uh, faster and can provide more housing in less of amount of time. And so these, these challenges, we, we have to tackle them and uh, we want to well, play our part in that. Yeah, and with early technologies, uh, could you repeat the analogy to the LED lights you brought up? <laughs> um, so I've I've been even before my my time at Perry, I've always been involved in innovation and long-term views on it. And and from my point of view, innovation mostly starts in niches, um, and those niches are I mean you could take a smartphone or an electric car, but the example that I like a little better is uh, LED lamps. Um, they've been invented decades ago and then decades later we, we were able to see them in, in very specific applications for example in the medical field mm -hmm. um, and now you can buy an LED lamp for a couple of bucks at IKEA right um, so it, it always took a while until these these innovations uh, make it to the to the mass market and this yeah. this patience um, needs needs to happen in the construction industry as well we cannot expect to do something radically new and right off the bat, we're better than, than technologies that have been around for, for a long time and have the opportunity to become more efficient and more efficient and more mm -hmm. efficient. Um, so we have to just acknowledge the reality of it um, while, not, while still obviously having this, this greater end goal of where we want to be. Yeah, from a distance, these things seem like magic or taken for granted like LED lights, but somebody has to pursue those innovations and make all those step changes to bring it uh, to that level where it's cheap and uh, you guys are playing a big part in making that happen. So the early prints, what's changed from say the first prints you did to, was the house your first print? You got the printer, I assume you started with some smaller objects? I mean, yes, we did, of course, uh, do a lot of testing as well. Uh, I mean, the first uh, two-story two building that we've done in Germany mm -hmm. um, is had to go through quite a, um, well, tough permitting process. Yeah. Uh, we have one of the most difficult um, building codes, uh, I think, in the world, maybe second to Japan and, and, and Germany. Um, and so of the, definitely not our first print when we got on the site. Um, that, uh, that's not the case. Um, but still, if you once you actually do go out there on the site um, to fight with the environmental conditions, mm -hmm. with the material logistics on a larger scale than, than we had in our uh, in our lab space, um, these were definitely some of the core challenges that we had to overcome. Um, but then again, I mean, the printing of layers is always just one thing. I, we've, we've learned so much about about quality assurance, about how do we integrate uh, rebar, how mm -hmm. do we integrate electrical insulation, um, and, and, and how do we make sure that the structure also has a good longevity. Uh, I think these are the things that, that are more important and sometimes, um, I mean, the 3D printing has an option of influencing the whole construction process, um, but sometimes in other projects we see that it seems to be focused very much on the walls itself yeah and we have always wanted to not just tackle the walls but really think about the holistic process yeah definitely and i see that uh there's some projects that just try to make a 3d printed house happen in the like quickest easiest way possible but as you're saying it requires improvements and so if you're not exploring then it's uh a waste of uh expensive project so if you're 
trying new things, integrating uh, technologies in ways that they're working together with 3D printed construction to make the other trades easier. That makes a lot of sense. So when you approached this new project, one of the main differences is it's not uh, one monolithic structure. Uh, it includes some timber frame construction. Um, were these decisions made for uh, practicality or on the architect's uh, whim? A little bit of both, I would say. I mean, in the projects that, that we executed years ago in Germany, we've printed every wall, right? Mm -hmm. Every load-bearing wall, non-load-bearing wall, facade and everything. Um, also to show that we can. Um, but the question is then always, you do a post-calculation and then you ask yourself, does it make sense to do this? Um, it, again, in the overall scheme of things. Um, that is one issue where we thought, okay, let's put the concrete to use where it's best used and mm -hmm. then it's in its structural capabilities. And, uh, and, and in instances where we don't have any structural need, why would we use this very strong material, right? Um, so that is one aspect. Um, the, the design of it, the, the combination of different building methods, uh, that definitely came into the equation. Um, and maybe a third point is that we've, we've learned from our project that we did in Tempe here in, in the States as well, right, to, the, to, to cope with uh, the blistering heat. Um, and again, we've printed this now here also in Texas while it was really hot. Um, the, the sectioning of the building plays a really important role um, to be able to navigate those ambient conditions. Yeah, the heat is not to be understated, especially in Tempe. When I was filming there, my cameras were overheating. I had to leave the AC on in my car and just switch cameras, leave one in the AC before it overheated. Yeah. In Houston, it was a little less hot, but certainly uh, it's still like high 90s, hundreds in the midday. Uh, and in Germany, it's the opposite. While you were printing in the winter, there was snow falling. Yes, sir. Um, we, we like to set up ourselves for a challenge, right? I mean, we um, we distribute uh, the cobalt technology to certain selected markets. So, for example, um, in the States and also in Central Europe. Um, and when we we want to help our clients with a, a full suite of services and, and knowledge that we can provide. Um, so we don't really feel comfortable to to let the client go out and do stuff that we potentially we've never done ourselves before mm -hmm. because then our help and is a little limited. So every project that we've done so far has been about setting up ourselves for a new challenge, mm -hmm. about learning. It's never been just about this this repetition process, right? Um, and that's why we wanted to do it in winter in Germany very purposefully, um, tried to push the boundaries there and found out that we got it to so, um, a couple of degrees below freezing. We were able to do it. Mm -hmm. But it was really tough as well, um, and now we did it here in, again in the, in the blistering heat. Um, in Tempe, we've learned a lot about this, so that now actually in Houston we've been able to cope with it a lot better, mm -hmm. um, which I think the, the layer quality um, is, is the best evidence of. Yeah, a lot of groups compensate for the heat by printing at night, uh, like they did with the Abus Core building in Dubai or some of the other projects where there's been a lot of heat. Uh, but you didn't have that luxury because you're printing in a like pretty dense residential zone. Uh, so you were printing during the day, exposed to sunlight, exposed to the heat. Uh, even yesterday at like 11 o'clock, you were printing uh, with a big media day event. Uh, how, what have you had to adapt? In the past, some prints exposed to sunlight have had cracking issues, but the house you're printing recently remarkably has 
very very little cracking mm. uh, cracking is definitely one of the, the biggest issues I, I believe for for a technology right now um, and it, it takes quite a few things to to have, make sure that it doesn't crack um, of course the material itself plays an important role where in this project we've been working with quickrete and again have been testing that significantly before we even went out on the site um, the sectioning again uh, plays a big part that you really ensure that the next layer comes on top in a decent amount of time to mm -hmm. you should create this, this the next layer of moisture basically. Um, curing is, is always uh, an issue that, that you incur and uh, but that's actually not too difficult to, to solve in the end. Um, uh, expansion joints is uh, the last one on the list that, that really helps yeah. um, that, that need to be integrated. Um, but one remark as well is, and I think uh, I don't maybe actually you know more about this than I do, is that I think there's there's always two two issues with cracking, right? There is one that happens hours, maybe a day after printing, and then there is cracking that happens um, over the lifetime of the structure. Um, and uh, because you know when you've had the first summer or the first winter and the structure's been around a while, maybe the f uh, foundation moves or all these different factors that come into it. Um, and uh, so obviously now we've been in the project here in Houston with the first type of cracking we've been very successful and with the second type of cracking we'll, we'll see um, how, how the structure uh, again we've tried our best to ensure that um, and but let's let's see and we try to be as open as we can I mean all the projects that we've done they're out there um, they, you can visit them you can see them from the outside we very purposefully didn't plaster them or try to hide anything um, and that is that is important to us, right? Certainly, the um, Heidelberg versus Quick Creep material. Uh, when you're working with different materials, they have different properties. Uh, especially when you're sourcing aggregates in Germany versus the U.S., you probably want to source as much locally as possible to reduce the expenses. And Perry having a headquarters here in Houston, anticipating further prints, uh, I'm sure they had that in mind. So. Were there differences in the way you needed to treat the material while it was being mixed, uh, while it was being printed? Yes, definitely so. I mean, that is one of the beauties of, of the cobalt machinery, right? That it is uh, material agnostic, mm -hmm. um, and it's also the, the beauty of, of the DMTEC mixing system together with our proprietary silo that we're using. Um, so to, we've, we've tried to supplement the cobalt machinery with the right framework around it mm -hmm. so that we can really use a various uh, various amounts of, of material um, and there really the devil is in the detail um, so even the geometry of your mixing device can can play a significant role in your material properties um, and these things have to be be again tested I'm, I'm saying this word a little bit often but I think it's important um, and um, so the mixing device of course the, even the water temperature might play a role uh, the amount of water definitely the hose length comes into the equation um, the aggregate size has a, plays a role in what type of, of pumping system you're using uh, layer time layer width layer height all of these factors um, have to be adjusted based on the material um, it has to be done, but on the other hand, it's also it's a doing. It's mm -hmm. not done something that where you say, okay, I will not be able to figure it out. Um, so we've been we've printed with so many different materials by now, and we know that you can can make it happen. Do you get a sense for the amount of room for improvement in three D printed construction versus traditional form work? Oh, I mean, tremendous. Uh, I mean, formwork is, there's still a lot going on also in yeah. that world and how to bring more digital solutions also to the formwork. Um, 
but nonetheless, uh, we, we are with every structure that goes up, and I think that's not just true for us, but for the industry as a whole, right? It's it's making jumps and leaps yeah. every year, um, and uh, the the progress that we can make is is there will be so much going on. But the, the most simple example that I like to make is is the, the layer height. Um, most structures that we've printed um, so far uh, as a real-world project have a layer height of a little less than an inch. Um, but in our lab space, we've also been doing close to two inches, right? So, um, and that obviously basically cuts your print time in half. Uh, so that's just one one very simple example of yeah. how we can make jumps and leaps here. That's a seemingly good move to increase the layer height. Uh, would you consider increasing aggregate size as well? Definitely. Um, that is, I mean, again, I think the whole 3D printing industry is aware of what aggregate sizes brings to the material costs, to shrinkage, to compressive strength. Um, it's it's uh, just a matter of time to, to, to make that happen. Um, but well, you, you have to always kind of start at one point and then see what really is painful um, in a project. Um, and that's what we very where we always say, you know, we need this minimal viable product that we can start off with to learn. Uh, and then we see where the biggest pain points are. Um, and then we tackle those and aggregate size is one of them. Um, but nonetheless, uh, there is not a one size fits all, mm -hmm. right? There will be projects where a lower aggregate size makes sense. And then there will be projects where a larger aggregate size makes sense. And this variety is such a beautiful thing in this technology of 3D printing that we can accommodate for, for all of these different pro types of projects. Yeah, certainly not to mention like geopolymers or hempcrete or whatever other solutions people may come up with in the future. Probably something we haven't heard of yet. Um, what would be the scenarios where you'd prefer a larger aggregate or prefer a smaller aggregate? Um, obviously, when we need more concrete uh, because of the structural capabilities, I mean, for a two-story building, um, the, 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 you can print rather narrow layers. Um, but the taller we go, or the more structure we want to put on top of what we have printed, um, then we'd like to print in bigger layer sizes, and then the, the larger aggregate size comes into the equation. That's definitely number one. And I think for projects that don't quite have that aesthetic aspect to them, where, where the layer, the visual aesthetics of the layer plays such a big role, mm -hmm. um, the larger aggregate size uh, is also be, can, can become more attractive. Yeah, the project you're doing now includes a lot of overhangs and uh, angled prints. Is that an example of a situation that's preferable to use mortars? The mortars have a, a capability of doing more inclination to so far, mm -hmm. and that can also change. Um, but I think the, with the overhangs and also if we really want to leave the layer structure exposed, we don't want to plaster it, not even in, on the inside, right, to, to leave it exposed. Um, then with, uh, with the mortars you have a very smooth control of your material um, and then that can be very helpful. Yeah, it's a nice thing to be family owned rather than a public company that has to worry about making quarterly profits um, because you can, it affords you that long-term perspective uh, to test all these things out. And back to the cracking for a second, I mean, some people, traditionally the mantra is concrete, it's a matter of when, not if it cracks, uh, or maybe it's uh, 70 years maybe it's 200 years but it's eventually going to have some type of maybe it's a hairline fracture or something um so your structure has some poured columns with rebar uh and so even in the scenario that there is an aesthetic crack it's unlikely to sacrifice the structural integrity of the building correct 
uh, 100%. Uh, we, we pay cl very close attention to that, that the structures we do right now, they are 100% safe and sound. Um, they might be a little bit over-engineered mm -hmm. because of that, um, but as we, again, we've tried in the lab space to, to prove the longevity of structures by doing freezing and thawing tests, for example, but it's still in a lab space, and uh, no, there haven't been 3D printed buildings around for decades, right? So on this side, we'd rather be safe and sorry, um, because I wouldn't be able to look myself in the mirror in the morning if something happens to an inhabitant of such a structure. So it's a slightly over-engineered on that end uh, for now. Um, but um, yeah, you're, you're perfectly right. Uh, concrete, any type of concrete, um, even the conventional ones, and no matter what rebar or fibers you use, it will crack. Uh, it's, um, you just need to be careful that it's um, neither structural and it also doesn't um, like hurt the integrity of a building in terms of, of water protection, if water doesn't get into the building. As long as you've taken consideration of these two factors, um, that, that's, that's fine. Um, but that's, that's what we are now um, gonna we are monitoring every structure that we've printed very closely um, every year to, to see has it moved, what's happened, um, and, and, and why. Yeah, you've only been here for on this trip a few days, but how do you like Houston? Uh, well, I'm, I'm a small city person myself, um, so uh, given this, the, the big sprawl of Houston is always a little um, a little difficult for me to navigate, and then with all ten lane highways, yeah, um, bumpy think, roads too. Yeah, that is true. But I think the the city itself. I've I've had tremendous food in Houston. I really enjoyed that, um, and the way that the city is is progressing and, and growing um, is, is is really nice. Um, and I've we've, we've just found the right partners in Houston to make projects happen, um, mm. and I think that's very very important. Um, and I like that that mindset here, and with all the partners and all the local people that have been been involved in the project, um, and, and that is what I appreciate very much about Houston. Cool. What's the Perry operation in Houston like? Um, so we have a, a warehouse here in, in Houston, uh, of which we are operating our 3D printing business out of. Um, we've been growing the team uh, substantially, but still, it's still a small team mm -hmm. uh, right now with with four people here in the U.S. But still growing the team, still looking for the right people to grow it. Um, there I'm always very adamant about that HR or sourcing of talent is really important and we, we'd rather take it a little slower but then we have the right people uh, for the job and the, and the team here with my colleagues Roberto and Sam and Hector, have, they're just doing a tremendous work um, uh, to making this happen here, here on the ground. Um, in our warehouse we have a printer that we can use for testing, we have the spare parts there, etc. so that we can um, help our clients locally and that we don't have to always ship things from, from Europe over yeah. here, which then makes the lead time longer, etc. You even shipped your printer over from Europe, it was the same printer you used for those other projects? That is very much correct. Um, the, the printer that was used to print the very first building in Germany is, is actually the printer that is now printing here in Houston. Most likely though it will be the last time it's been out on a site mm -hmm. and it will now be going in the lab space and stay there um, because um, Cobot has been making a lot of improvements uh, to, to, the, to the gantry system itself um, and we have the newer printers arrive here uh, as well so that we can utilize those also in our rental project for our clients. Nice. Cobot did a good job. I know they provided a lot of updates to your printer uh, throughout its lifespan. Um, the new printer, I guess there's some changes that can't be retrofitted. Uh, they So to our knowledge, actually it can. So we've actually done uh, a lot of retrofitting as well mm -hmm. uh, to, to some of the lab printers that we use. Um, 
And I appreciate that very much about the Cobalt team, that they have that in mind. They have in mind also their existing client base that might have well, older printers, they're not really old as such, um, and, and that they can get those, those upgrades. Um, yeah. But even nonetheless, I mean, obviously, the printer that it has is out there in Houston, uh, and you've seen the, the quality it produces, right? While it's one of the older ones, it still works and still does its job very yeah. nicely, right? So, um, given this, the, the upgrades uh, are helpful, definitely, for sure, um, but you don't necessarily have to have them to produce good quality products. What kind of upgrades are you looking forward to? I know the hose management system has been improved a bit. Hose management is, is, is part of the issues um, that, uh, but unfortunately, I mean, we have a big fair coming up, a big, a big exhibition event at the end of October. Um, so I hope for your understanding that I can't talk all that much about the new things that are coming up. Um, we will we will showcase them um, in the end of October at Bauma. Great. Um, and then I'd be happy to, to have you there and share a little bit more about them at that time. Awesome. So are there uh, other projects that is there anything you're able to talk about about the future uh, in Houston, perhaps, or in the United States? Uh, yeah, we, we are not big on announcing things. I'm not a big fan of that. I always like to, to speak about it when there's actually a printer on the site and there has a, something being printed um, because, well, things can happen. Right? That's probably smart. Uh, I'd say, like, one in ten of the projects I hear about actually end up going uh, becoming built. And so uh, sometimes it's a challenge. If you want to 3D print a house, you can. Uh, if you have a specific location that you want to print a house, maybe you can't. Uh, there's uh, it's restrictions, municipalities, permitting. Uh, Houston has no zoning laws, so that's a little bit helpful, but you still need to win permits. Uh, what was that process like with the Houston District 8 municipality? Um, it was definitely more difficult than in a smaller municipality. Um, uh, they have a very professional setup here in Houston about that. Um, but we went through the, the normal process of, of uh, handing in the, the construction documents, going through a revision, and then we did the changes. We answered the questions that were out there and, and put it up. I think the difference is always in terms of a conventional structure that we highly recommend to involve the municipality or mm -hmm. the building authority at a very, very early stage. Yeah. Um, to to educate them on what it is that we're doing, to have them while we are testing something so that they can contribute. Um, because in my experience so far, I, I've not seen a municipality in, in all the countries that we've been doing it that isn't helpful in yeah. a way. They also have an, a deep understanding that we need to change something in the construction industry. Um, and so also here in Houston, the conversations have been very much on eye level um, and we've been having good discussions and they gave us also good feedback on, on things that we could change or do differently to make it better. Um, so I would always say, you know, don't, don't be afraid of this, of talking to the municipalities. It's not a, it's, it's, it's something you got to do, but it's not a, a huge hurdle to take. It can actually be very helpful um, if, you, if you try to really involve them. Yeah, and all the early projects you did, uh, they were huge learning experiences, and now they're good references to have, uh, you can show them you've done a two-story 3D printed house before, uh, rather than trying to convince someone it's possible before it's ever been seen. Uh, so were you able to pull some of the documents from the Germany permitting and use that as a demonstration for them? Little, um, actually, uh, and the core reason is, as you mentioned earlier, that in Germany we've been using the Heidelberg material and here the Quick Read material, mm -hmm. right? And as the, if you change even just sand and aggregates in a, in a material, 
Um, it can change the properties quite significantly. Um, the, the concrete scientists know that very well. Um, so even if you go from one plant of production to, uh, to another, things might change, they don't have to. Um, and given this, we, we had to, um, to really reiterate some of these things. But we knew how, right? We knew what we would have to be looking mm -hmm. for, what would be critical to test, um, and that that was the, the huge learnings that we were able to bring uh, from our from from Europe to the States. Um, that yeah, we weren't just doing tons of tests, and some of them that didn't really create value, but we were more more focused on the critical parts. How much material testing is required throughout the actual print? Is it like one per day or? Um, well, I think there is a difference a little bit of what is required and what we do. Um, so uh, we, we always like to print a couple of pieces on the side mm -hmm. that we can then test uh, a couple of weeks later and some of them even a year later, right? Uh, so that we can, can really monitor how the structure is, is doing. In Europe, you have to do that, even with a conventional concrete structure. Um, in the States, that is, uh, you have a little bit more leeway on that. Um, but still, this is this is something that we recommend. So again, it's not just about what a municipality might want, but it's about creating that learning. I mean, it's exceedingly interesting to say, okay, this is a structure that has been printed in the ambient conditions of the actual building, um, and a year later we can we can test it and how it performs a year later. Yeah, I read through AC five hundred nine, which was developed by Contour Crafting a long time ago, and it seems like it was made to ruin 3d printed construction for the rest of time like was that paid for by american former companies or something i don't know but uh it's great to see that it's not uh you guys have been able to circumvent some of the like it says you can't have two-story residential structures mm -hmm. why not if you can build a one-story residential structure 20 feet high why not put a floor system in it mm -hmm. uh so was that a something you had to fight against or ignore completely? No, I mean, we, we took it into consideration and we've also made the municipality aware of these documents, right? If they find them themselves and they have the feeling that we try to hide something from them, that doesn't, that, that wouldn't help. Um, but we feel, or I personally, that this is now a very subjective opinion, actually, uh, from, from me personally. I think um, there are instances that other construction methods have also taken decades to make it into the American Concrete Code. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm not mistaken, Shotcrete actually made it into the Concrete Code like in 2019 or something like that. So like, it's been around for since the 50s or so. So then it takes a long time to make it actually into the code. Um, luckily, I mean, in, in the US you call it the alternate methods and the means, right? So there is there is always that little paragraph that tells you, look, if you want to do something differently than this code tells you, um, you can, if you can showcase that the, the, with them and back it up with data. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and I think that's that's what we need to do. And there are some some very exciting norming initiatives out there, right? All driven by, by Stefan Mazur, for example, and and um, that and we're a part of that. Um, but those will develop over time. We and, and I think everybody's aware of that. We now need to try to put a little bit of a guideline in place. But this guideline will not stay like that in the next years. It will it will change. It will adapt. Um, so uh, I think it's good still to, to, to have these documents that can give you a wide array of input in terms of what you might want to look for and what you might want to test for. And then in the end, you still have to take your individual project into account. Yeah, Stefan's doing a great job. Um, my favorite part about it is instead of having one little paragraph at the end, 
uh, it's so it's built with the intention of being able to test new things uh, and explore new possibilities with a rapidly evolving technology that you can't really define in the uh, present tense for how it may look in the future. Um, I didn't know about that last paragraph of AC509, so that's good to hear. And it's like, I guess, almost 20 years old. Uh, so even with Cobot adding new improvements to their printers, uh, how could such an old regulation apply to a new technology? Um, maybe that's why Europe has always led like prefab and even when the mass timber was a big new thing that was kind of led by Europe as well. Um, will Perry be doing many more printing projects in Germany around Europe? We have several projects um, uh, lined up uh, in Europe um, as well as in the, in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I need to always point out, right, we, we don't see ourselves as, as a construction company or as a 3D printing company that we do the printing ourselves necessarily. Um, we ha are doing it because as we believe you want to you wanna buy a machine from somebody who's used it yeah. <laughs> extensively, um, who has that knowledge not just in building the machine but actually how to use the Certainly. machine. Um, so the projects that we do as Perry always have this, this innovative mindset and trying to push the boundaries. Um, that's, that's what we're, we're in it for. Um, so to create the learnings to understand how do we need to improve the technology, how do we need to improve the process, how, what can we do to increase the scale of the structures we print um, or that then our clients can print. So that is, this is definitely, again, important to, to point out. I mean, we're, we're now delivering printers to, to our clients here in the States um, and, and then we can use all those learnings to help them and, and uh, that they can hit the ground running. Do you think you'll be using the CMEX material? Um, it is uh, definitely an option. Um, it, it, this one again very much depends on the also again on the municipality and the regulations um, because it's it's obviously amazing to use the, the very 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 local ingredients. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the quality assurance is then always something that one has to take care of, you, that you yourself have to do. If you buy material in our case now from Quickrete that is already pre-blended they do the quality assurance um, and that's I think the, the different aspect of it and that's one thing and the other is um, it, our, also our site right now in Houston um, isn't isn't the biggest site right I mean the bit the structure itself is fairly large so there isn't all that much space around it um, and I believe again not one size fits all right so if you do uh, a, pro a residential project and you want to print quite a few structures um, the CEMIC solution um, that, that Cobalt has developed together with them can be very beautiful. Um, if you do one very bespoke structure, um, the, the prefab material or the pre-mixed materials um, uh, might make more sense and we can do both. Yeah. You were mentioning you're always looking for um, people to join the Perry team. I like to think that there's some pretty intelligent 3D printed construction enthusiasts listening. Uh, what would the ideal candidate look like? Um, we always look for people that that have that that passion for what it is that we do, right? Um, we we want to change the world. We want to make it a better place. Um, we are in the intersection of various, let's say, engineering fields, so to say. Um, and none of our um, people that we have in the team have had those, those this expertise from the start, mm -hmm. right? Um, so as long as as you are basically joined in our vision and mission and changing the world and how we can do this, 
Um, this is the core thing that, that we are looking at. Um, and apart from that, the, the, the engineering background, if it's now whatever, architecture, material engineering, mechanical engineering. Um, but also, I mean, we obviously don't just have people that, that have a university degree. We have lots of other people that have learned their trades. Um, and, 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 and in all of this, the important thing is you need to burn for what it is that we're doing. Quite literally, when it gets hot out in Houston or Tempe, uh, will you do a lot more? Do you anticipate being printing in hot regions uh, in the United States? Will you be printing in cold regions in the States? Um, we will do both. Uh, I mean, we also have a couple of clients in, uh, up north in the States that, that we're working with. Um, I foresee as most of the most growing metropolitan areas in the States currently are located uh, more in the southern parts, mm -hmm. right? If it is now whatever Phoenix and Arizona or Orlando and Florida or, or Houston, Texas. Yeah. So I think the warmer climates uh, will be uh, more, more prevalent. Yeah. Um, and also in the States, I believe, I mean, one of the upsides of the technology is the resiliency that we can provide, right? Um, and uh, that is also more important from my understanding um, in the more of the southern parts where, we, where you have more of natural disasters coming in every now and then. Um, so here the USP uh, that 3D printing can bring um, is, is even more important. Yeah, those natural disasters seem to be scaling up too. So it's probably a good thing long term to have things a little over engineered, uh, which the 3D printed construction techniques with also having structural rebar poured concrete they usually have that uh you mentioned that perry doesn't intend on printing all the projects for the future what does the long-term business model of the perry 3d construction division look like um so we uh, are again a provider of technology mm -hmm. for, for our clients right so we we sell equipment we rent equipment um so far uh, we, we have limited amount of printers available for rent but they're here um, so that we can do that so for our clients that don't necessarily say want to put down the, the, the cash for the machine but they want to give it still want to give it a try um, that, that we can help them out that way hmm. um, and again all the services around it and this is very much in line with our core business that we, we are in our former scaffolding business I mean we have just in the United States we have several yards spread across the country so hmm. that we are available um, and can help the people also in their region with, with the specific uh, parts that they need. That makes a lot of sense. It fits the traditional construction model. Few GCs own their own equipment. They'd rather uh, rent it for the time they need it uh, and so many people have been asking if they can rent a construction 3D printer, but as you're saying, like the, there's so few of these machines out there right now. Even though there's so many more than there were last year, two years ago, uh, I know Cobot has the ambitious goal of scaling up 100% every year, which would put them at like a billion in 30 years, but uh, they can keep up with that for a while, hopefully. And uh, yeah, you'll have a second printer. So the second printer in Houston, uh, that one will be rented out? That can be rented out, exactly. Right? Um, and that is, that is the, the purpose of the machine. Um, we might, again, also use it for a project of our own if it's innovative enough, uh, that, or if we are going to do that, but mm -hmm. it is available for rent. 
Um, I mean, maybe in contrast to how rental works in the conventional industry is that people know already how to use the yeah. equipment they're renting. Um, and for us, obviously, the, the training and the, uh, that, that comes with it, always also with the rental, you still need that upfront training. You still need to have that service around it about the planning side of it. Um, but that's, again, that's what we're here for and that's why we're here to help. Um, we want to share our knowledge and I believe we try to be as, as open as we can about it so that we can grow the industry as a whole. There is nothing to be gained um, to be too secretive. Yeah, there certainly is that two-step process. It's not just the equipment rental, it's the training and then the equipment rental. Um, maybe even some support on site. Exactly. Uh, potentially renting operators uh potentially uh we call them supervisors so we do send out people um, exactly to to help with with setup of the machine with calibration with with helping on the site um that is that is important um, i think that is a fine line if we would send out the operator are we then all of a sudden the contractor that we actually don't want to be mm -hmm. um that, that might be a little bit of a fine line um uh, to that we, we need to figure out in the individual project yeah it seems cobod when they sell a printer, they usually have some operators go out just to help with the first print uh, as like a testing process. Uh, do you think it would be more streamlined than that, potentially video only, and then they'd be able to get started on their own? Or is that hands-on in-person training really required? I think for the time being, the hands-on in-person training will be required. Um, I mean, yes, you can do a couple of upfront things, of course, digitally. I mean, COVID has proven that a lot of things can be done remotely, yeah. uh, and that will continue to be so. Um, but some things you just have to see or you have to touch the material to, to have an understanding of yeah. what's going on. Um, and that's why why we have created our team here in Houston and aren't saying, look, we are going to do all of this from Europe. No, no, we need people locally here that, that can be with you in a short amount of time um, to, to help if something is wrong. Yeah, I did an operator training with a different company and they had it was very qualitative. So when the material starts coming out, uh, at first it's just the water going through and then you start to get some of the powder so that it's not all the powder at once clogging up the machine. Uh, and then you have to... It was just touching the material and trying to feel if it had a solid core uh, to know if it was ready to be printed. Uh, is your process similar to know when the material parameters are right, the water to powder ratio? Uh, how do you test if it's ready to print? I mean, we, we do measure it. Um, and again, we will showcase a little bit more about that at, at Bauma. Bauma. Um, but yes, there is measurements involved. Um, the, let's say the eyeballing of the material um, is, is still something that an experienced operator can do. Mm -hmm. um, so they might not even need to measure it. They will be eyeballing it and say it's fine yeah. and the measurements will then just be able to, to document it potentially. Um, so uh, I get that process of, of feeling and touching and eyeballing because that can be very, very valuable to the process. Um, still, we like to, to be able to, in particular, again, to document the quality in every single layer. Um, if one layer isn't good and the adhesion in that one layer, that will be uh, very detrimental to your tensile strength. Um, so to really make sure of that, um, that you, you, you can't like eyeball your material every second. Right? Yeah. Um, so that is something that we need to measure differently. Yeah, keeping the material consistent uh, with throughout changes in temperature, uh, sunlight throughout the day, um, requires some adjustments, right, to the water ratio. 
uh, and additives. Although you said they have a, a one a ready mix mm. solution, uh, are there still liquid additives included or accelerants? Um, so in the project that we're doing now over here in, in Houston, no. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, um, but you can do that also with, with the COVID machinery. You can introduce um, liquid additives if, if you need to. Um, but the water content is, is one of the things you can change. Um, obviously, um, concrete scientists don't like to put a lot of water. I mean, the more water you put into it, the less strength, the more cracking. So uh, we don't really want to play around with the water content too much. It's a, in, a, in a rather narrow space. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, with, with the pumping, the frequency of the pumping, um, the frequency of the mixing, the, the print speed, the extrusion rates, so there are quite a few other parameters um, that can be adjusted. Um, I still believe that a, in a good printing process, uh, if you print six hours a day, you shouldn't have to change any parameters more often than maybe two times a day. Um, otherwise, something is not quite right in the process. If you have to change it more often, then, mm-hmm. then the, the, the process is at fault. Um, so um, that, that is at least how, how we see it. We want to have the machine really, really run and our people more or less just monitoring it or be able actually to be freed up to do other work while the printer is running, right? Um, and not just be continuously messing around with, with parameters. What are the key measurements uh, that define a material as printable uh, after it's extruded? So uh, besides water content, mm-hmm. uh, so we don't go as much about the buildability as, as for example, with a robotic arm printer where you have a smaller print area um, and uh, different applications than, mm-hmm. than we like to tackle. Um, you, you obviously go up in height very much, so there the buildability is very important as we are going more into the horizontal direction in our prints. Um, the buildability isn't uh, the, the most important part. Um, I mean, the, the rheology and the viscosity of the material. You mentioned the you're looking less at the buildability. Um, because of the size of your print and you've managed to cleverly space out even different objects and with your start stop function you're able to move from one object to the next I guess it's like 15 to 20 minute layer time is ideal we actually like it a little longer than that Um, I mean 15 minute layer time can be done uh, but we actually again like it a little longer and and, um, because we like the robustness of it um, I personally have not seen any type of machine or process that always works perfectly uh, and that the same is true for 3D printing mm-hmm. um, and if something goes wrong you want to have leeway um, you don't want to then say okay if something yeah. is wrong I need to flush everything right now or everything will be clogged right so but you want to be able to say okay you know let's move the machine to the side have at least a couple of minutes what is going on what's wrong what do we need to do um, and then potentially just oh, okay we can continue to print right away because the material gives you that, that leeway um, and if you are going for that buildability um, usually your, your material is highly accelerated and then you do not have that leeway right mm-hmm. you need to just flush everything right away so how much leeway do you get with the stop function uh, how long can you leave it stopped before you have to worry about clogging in the hose uh, usually 15 to 20 minutes if you keep the material alive a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you try to move it either back and forth or you try to move to, move to, to at least move it every now and then, um, that is usually a leeway that you can have with most of the, the, the pre-blended materials that are out there. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you keep the material in motion while it's in the hose and what's the uh, 
upper end of the layer time before you risk not having a monolithic segment? Um, very dependent on the material it use and the ambient conditions, um, but uh, ballpark-wise, roughly half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so, and again, like that's probably where you're coming from with maybe your 15 to 20 minutes layer time. That's what you might want to plan for, so that you still have the additional leeway um, in there as well. Um, so, but uh, that is. There is a lot of safety in that. Uh, most most likely, if you would test the um, the adhesion in the layer time in the lab space, you might come to the result that you have a 50 minute layer time. Um, but on the side, we'd, we'd rather than still calculate with significantly less, um, yeah. so that we can react, or that wind and sun, etc., is, is also incorporated in the process. Do you ever try to simulate sun in a warehouse scenario? Or- Yes, sir, uh, we have, um, and then also rain and also wind, um, but that is still um, a lot of effort to do it, yeah. number one. And obviously the, the permutations of all of this, right, the, to say, okay, we have temperature, we have wind, we have rain, we have sun, and all of those in different degrees, and then you permutate all of those, and they have all of thousands of different scenarios that, would, that you would have to test and go through. Um, so that's always uh, a little difficult, so we'd rather test a couple of those scenarios and then include a, a, a bit bigger safety factor, um, like it is usually done with concrete materials and other testing approaches, um, and that's, that's the way we go about it. Yeah, in places like Florida, you could get almost all of those things in like an hour or so. <laughs> Agreed, yes. Yeah. Houston is a little uh, less fluctuation in the weather. Um, in a rain scenario, I guess if you if the layer time top end is like 30 minutes, 50 minutes, that would be enough time to prevent rain from detrimenting the structure? Or? Um, so if it rains a little, that's usually not a problem whatsoever. And in fact, it can help a mm-hmm. little bit with the curing of the concrete. If it rains buckets, no, nothing happens on a construction side if it rains buckets. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter if it's timber frame, printing, whatever. So if it rains buckets, you don't want to be printing. Um, We've, we've had the pleasure uh, about two and a half years ago to print through a hailstorm once. Um, and we actually did print through it because it was like the last three layers um, of a story that, that we wanted to get done. So um, it worked. Um, it, 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 did figure, it did work. Um, it was, everybody was drenched and I don't want to do it again. Um, but it, uh, it, it, it can be done. Um, but again, very dependent on the material as well. Uh, there's material that have hydrophobic properties integrated into them. Um, then you might uh, have to pay a little bit of more of, of attention that the water is, is not um, between layers, but incorporated kind of into the material. Um, yeah, so unfortunately, uh, a lot of dependency is there that you, there's not one truth um, that, that really works, goes into it. And, and then that's, that's why what we're here for to help and then advise. I noticed at the media day after the print they were spraying it. Uh, was that water to keep it hydrated or a chemical to help it with curing? Uh, that's that's water um, that that has been used. Um, so, I mean, there's there's for curing you can put something to cover your material, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if you put weight on your concrete material that that's just printed you run a little bit of risk of it slightly dropping and that's not a huge issue of course, but it can happen. So we've run that process of of misting it for a couple of minutes um, and then a couple of minutes later it does have that little bit more strength that we need, then we can cover it and then we're good to go. Yeah, it's so interesting how it takes uh, 
hours. I mean, for a huge project, like the biggest printed house in the world, you mentioned something around 200 print hours you anticipate. Um, but that's such a short amount of time compared to uh, the lifespan of the concrete. So it's really the way you're treating it in that 200 hours that dictates uh, its longevity throughout the whole thing. Um, I noticed you weren't using a tent. Uh, you had one side with a wall. Uh, I guess that helps a little bit with the sunlight, but not when it's right overhead. So uh, how is that? Um, yeah, we've, uh, we feel that if you have to cover the structure um, that, that we are printing or, or the print area, that obviously adds quite a tremendous cost factor to it. Um, if we would have found out in some of our earlier projects years ago that we need a tent to be able to successfully print, mm -hmm. I think that would have put a huge dent into the potentials of the technology. Um, luckily, that wasn't the case. Um, so yeah, we, we like to do it uh, completely outside. Yeah, we did put up a shade basically on, on two of the columns, um, also for our people there to to make it a little bit more. But well, it's probably more of a psychological factor that you feel you have a little bit of shade than than it actually helping you um, uh, with with the with the structure so um, you need to be able to do it in all those various weather conditions um, yeah. uh, otherwise the technology will not be able to fulfill its potential yeah it's uh the possibility of more automation on the construction site is very alluring to a lot of people uh, and i believe based on the nidus printer they have from cobod uh, they were able to reduce the need for somebody to be manning the chain or the, the hose management system. Um, and not some more things that could possibly be automated. I'm just speculating here. These might be some of the things you can't talk about, might bring up a Bauma. Uh, but the, the water being sprayed on the concrete after it's printed, the printer has access to uh, XYZ axis. It can go all around and uh, seems like it would be able to spray water on the system. Another thing is the double epoxy bond uh, after you complete a day of printing uh, to make sure you get a, a solid connection to the next new layers. Um, do you anticipate the double epoxy bond ever being automated? Maybe not in the short term, but... I do anticipate some of the th these things to be automated, um, but the, the things you've mentioned, like the spraying of water and the epoxy, that's actually so little value in it and, mm -hmm. and um, we feel, I mean, it doesn't make sense to automate everything. Humans are tremendous machines as well and, you know, having somebody go up there for 10 minutes to spray some water or to, to go some so 15 minutes to put on some epoxy, that's uh, the the amount of work it would take to automate that and the additional cost of machinery that you have, from my point of view, doesn't really make sense um, to then automate such a thing. Um, but of course, there are other things that, that that you can look at, and I mean, I mean, that's the. Um, there's various companies who are looking at how can we spray paint something, right? Or how can we autom automate um, the, the stucco or the plastering of, of a structure. Um, focus for this one is, from my point of view, very detrimental or very, very important um, that we need to we need to focus on certain things right now and do a little bit of our homework yeah um and not be saying okay you know 3d printing been there done that let's automate the next thing mm -hmm. um there's still lots of work that has to go into the 3d printing aspect yeah. of it um let's get that done and then we can focus on on the next thing um so that that is going to happen though for sure um that we combine different automation technologies um, on construction sites we will see that in the future do you think that will come mostly from the 
uh, equipment or the material side or the software side? Um, of course, yeah, all that three. Is a, that is a good, a good one. Uh, but I think it will mostly be pushed from the equipment side. But again, you need all three in the end. Uh, but I think the equipment side is going to be the the side that is pushing for it the most. The material side doesn't really care if it's put on manually or automatically. They still need most likely a similar amount of material, so mm -hmm. they will still sell their material. So they don't have a strong feeling about this. Um, but the equipment manufacturers, obviously, they do. Have you experimented with hempcrete at all, or uh, geopolymers? Uh, hempcrete, no. Geopolymers, yes. Um, we've, we've also publicized a little bit about that. So we, we have been printing very successfully with geopolymers, um, and we are going to continue um, working on that. Um, it, it's definitely an exciting alternative. Mm -hmm. um, the overall life cycle cost analysis isn't quite easy to make. Um, and the availability of the materials and the quality assurance, FlyEdge, for example, can, uh, can has a lot of variety. Even if you source it from the same mm -hmm. um, same plant every time, you still have a lot of variety, and then you need to adjustments to the mix every time. So these are the things that we need to to look at. Um, the devil is really here in the detail. But geopolymers is, is definitely an, an interesting avenue for for research. Do you anticipate that being used for? residential projects in the near future or it still has a long way to go in terms of uh, regulating the getting consistent mixes? I think we'll see it fairly soon. Um, the, the material, again, we've, we've done it, been there, uh, have, have also publicized it. It's very, very nicely printable. Mm -hmm. um, and with 3D printing navigating around some of the codes anyway, um, it doesn't really matter what we are printing with, mm -hmm. what type of material we are printing with. As long as we can back it up with this sufficient testing and data, it, it doesn't matter if it's concrete, cement, geopolymers, mushroom paste, I don't care, right? So um, that, that is again the beauty. We can really think outside of the box and go new, new avenues. Um, concrete is available all over the globe. Um, it has uh, a lot of merits. Uh, it's very difficult to replace as a construction material, as you know. Um, I, I think the focus on the concrete side needs to be about using less of it. Um, and if we can manage that and, and, and add to that the, the aspects of, of lower cement contents, um, then concrete is also a very, very sustainable material to be used, in particular also because we can recycle it, etc. Um, so um, we need to take a look at the environmental footprint of concrete. It's important to us. Um, but we are not saying that concrete itself is is the, the bad guy, so to say. Yeah, the something a little less talked about is the rotor stators uh, that end up being replaced throughout the project. Uh, one group I talked to was saying we're not using rotor stators, and so I dug in a little bit, and it's because they were mixing by hand completely, uh, which obviously isn't very automated. But do you see room for innovation in the rotor stators, or is it a necessary evil? Um, no, we see we see room there um, that that you can do something something with it. Um, although we have to say, I mean, that this mixing pumping equipment has been around for decades. Yeah. It has been improved. It's very efficient, very easy to use. You can digitally speak with those machines. You can have them interact. So um, it it does. Uh, there is a good reason that those PCP pumps are being used. Um, uh, but still, uh, it's this is innovation that can happen. Right now, we're happy with it. Um, it works beautifully, so it's not very up, uh, very high up on the list, I'd say. Um, but um, I do see potential there. 
And what about uh, delivered concrete rather than mixing on site? I mean, that would be, uh, that's something that I, I guess, again, the whole industry is, is looking at, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's, uh, that, that would be exceedingly nice if we could do it um, from, from all sort of, I mean, cost-wise, logistics-wise, sustainability-wise, it would be very, very beautiful to do. Um, that, uh, that will remain um, a technological challenge um, for, for some, time, some more time to be able to execute that. And, and I think not to be able to execute it in a lab space, that's always that's always one thing to be able to stack a couple of layers of them or even a lot of layers in a lab space. Uh, but then, okay, you have one concrete truck coming in, and the next one is in a traffic jam, and the next one is out there in the sun. And uh, yeah, so how how do we incorporate that, and how do we then again do all of this quality assurance? I think that will be be the challenge here. Um, so not the proof of concept will not be the challenge but to bring it into the real world um, of construction will be a challenge. As we conclude, uh, come to the end of this podcast, um, what's, how can people reach you if they're excited about a project and how can they approach you uh, in an intelligent, comprehensive way rather than just saying, I want a 3D printed house? for ten thousand dollars <laughs> um, so uh, please visit our homepage uh, perry3dconstruction.com um, reach out to us uh, and we would obviously love to know what exactly drives you why do you want to use 3d printing what do you think is the value in it for you do you have a specific project in mind um, are you just interested a little bit to learn um, and, and all of those is fine I mean we again you, you will get an information from us in terms of what what we can offer and what the technology can offer um, but the more we understand what problem um, you're trying to solve with the technology um, that would always help us because obviously we uh, we are not the only smart people out there and uh, I think that other people have great ideas of how we could use this technology and, and, and what problem it might be solving um, and we'd be exceedingly interested to start a conversation that way. Would you prefer they uh, approaching it from that very high level perspective of their motivations or would it be helpful for them to have some kind of sketch or design of what they'd like to print? Um, both can be very helpful if they have a sketch and say look this is the size of structure that, that I want to print uh, does it make sense of course that's very helpful um, to, to understand it uh, but it's not needed if you ha don't have a project specifically in mind and you don't have a sketch yet that is also very can be beneficial because then you can, we can first um, try to educate in mm -hmm. terms of where we think 3d printing can add the most value and to what type of structure uh, and then we can start it that way Awesome. Well, that concludes the first and probably the only in-studio uh, podcast. I don't know how many other 3D printed construction CEOs will be here in Houston uh, anytime soon. But thank you. I appreciate you joining me today. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the progress of the print you're working on now and all the prints you're going to be building in the future. Thanks. Thank you very much, Jared.